May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Well, to listen as tonight's text from the Gospel according to Mark was read aloud, and to hear it concluded with that, those words, the word of the Lord, and then to be expected to answer, thanks be to God, might have raised an eyebrow or two in the congregation tonight. I mean, seriously, once it gets rolling, this section of Mark's account gets us into some pretty tough, uncompromising, even violent territory. All of those words about lopping off body parts, if they cause you to stumble, to say nothing about the line about it being better to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be tossed into the sea than to face what might be coming if you cause one of those little ones to stumble. Well, it's not exactly the stuff to make us feel good and spiritual on a Sunday night, is it? There's a character named Brownie in Frederick Beekner's series of four darkly comic novels, The Book of Beb. And that figure of Brownie, one of Beekner's great creations, I think, as a novelist, has long struck me as a figure preachers should most fear resembling. A preacher himself, Brownie can manage to turn even the toughest of Jesus' words into feel-good material. In one of these novels, Brownie is faced with tonight's text. And I'm going to read you a paragraph uh, from Beekner's presentation of this character. In explicating the passage, Brownie drew attention, as might have been expected, to some facts about the ancient world that illuminated the meaning and prevented the possibility of certain obvious misunderstandings. In the time of Jesus, he pointed out, the grain was of such poor quality and so easily pulverized that millstones were often made of a light, porous stone resembling pumice. This stone was indeed so unusually aerated, almost in the manner of styrofoam, that combined with the fact the salt content of the Dead Sea was so notoriously high that even fat men could float in it like corks, a millstone around the neck might, under certain circumstances, serve the function of a life preserver. And this was clearly what the passage intended, Brownie argued. It was better not to cause one of the little ones to sin, no question about that. But if you slipped up, then out went the lifeline with a floating millstone tied to the working end, and very few people drowned in the Dead Sea anyway. Well, I reread this series of four novels over the summer, which include a further half-dozen instances of Brownie's interpretive gymnastics. And each time one came up, I found myself delighting in Beekner's tongue-in-cheek portrayal of a preacher who will do anything to make Jesus nice. But this preacher would also feel a twinge of uneasiness 
To what degree am I or are all preachers inclined to do something of the same? To soften, explain away, politely account for when Jesus gets so wound up. Which is part of Beekner's point, of course. Well, Brownie's interpretive gymnastics aside, these are not particularly nice words. And there's simply no way around that fact. But why should we expect otherwise? Jesus is never portrayed as being in any sense nice in the Gospels. He's certainly portrayed as merciful. He's even marked by a deep kindness. And the song that we're going to close worship with tonight is that song, Kindness, written by Brian McLaren. And many of you will know the version that Steve Bell recorded. Jesus is marked by a kindness and a compassion. But that's quite different from being thinly nice. As Amy Oden observes in her comments on this passage, the violence of Jesus' hyperbole here is inescapable. He uses an over-the-top, bolded and all-caps format to get the disciples and our attention. So to what does he want the disciples and us to attend? Well, in the case of not placing a stumbling block in the path of these little ones, he's pressing them to be aware of the ways in which they might cause another person in the community to fall away, the ways in which we can do real injury one to another. While at several points in the Gospels, Jesus does say some very powerful things about the place of children, here the phrase, little ones, means more than just the children. Here it points to everyone in the community who for any number of reasons are vulnerable to being hurt. Yes, it includes children, but it's a bigger picture. It means all of us, ultimately, all of us liable to being hurt. Don't start doing damage to one another, undermining, manipulating, or leading one another off down the garden path, he says. There are serious consequences here in our responsibility for each other. Well, as Mark structures the passage, it then rolls forward from the ways we might cause another person to stumble to a series of verses on the way we end up stumbling ourselves. And so, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. The word in the gospel, incidentally, is Gehenna. Some of you will know this. Gehenna was actually Jerusalem's garbage dump where the garbage from the city was burned, and it never stopped burning. It never stopped smelling. It never stopped smoking, ever. And so it became, Gehenna became, this symbol for ultimate misery and loss. Same thing for your foot or your eye. Rid yourself of them if you're getting in trouble. To return to Amy Oden's comments, the violence of the hyperbole is inescapable, unsettlingly so. It is, of course, hyperbole, and I'm not being brownie in saying that. 
It is extravagant exaggeration, as the Webster Dictionary would say, though there are tragic stories of some people taking these words literally and mutilating their own bodies as a way to, to deal with the shame of some sin, some fall. Frankly, the last thing Jesus would have us do No, he's not talking about lopping off limbs as a way of preventing sin. After all, at an earlier point in Mark, Jesus said very clearly that it's from the human heart that evil intentions come. But he wants to ask, what is it that your hands grasp for? What are you grabbing, trying to get your hands on? Where are your feet leading you in your worst moments? your most self-centered and most self-destructive times, what catches your eye and starts you obsessing in a way that you can't let go? His bolded and all-caps language is an invitation to look hard for the Achilles heel or, to use a more current image, to look hard for our own default settings, those ones that we too easily and automatically return when we start to get kind of fragile. This whole section of the gospel is meant to be a robust challenge to our assumptions. It is intended to startle and unbalance the hearer. And in doing so, it actually tips us back toward the road on which we're intended to be walking. These were never intended to be nice words to make us feel good about just me and Jesus on a Sunday night. I appreciate the way N.T. Wright deals with the challenge of these words. He says, Many today write and speak as if the only purpose in following Jesus were to find complete personal fulfillment and satisfaction, to follow a way or path of personal spirituality which will meet all of our felt needs. That's hardly the point. The point, rather, is to find the courage to name the self-serving and self-absorbed default settings in our own selves and to get on with resetting them. It's not always easy, of course, to do that. In fact, it's not always easy to see what our own default settings are to see what's really going on within our own selves. Sometimes you can be blind to that for a long, long time, much less change it. Be at peace with one another are the words with which this section closes, which in some real sense dovetails with some of the words from the epistle of James that we heard read tonight, where James writes, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The word sin generally conjures up images of bad behavior that we're not supposed to be doing, but that somehow secretly we really desperately want to be doing. You know, that that, that kind of wickedly wonderful sin. In fact... That's really not what the notion of sin is about biblically. What sin is about is acting in ways that keep us from being what we were intended to be, that pull us away from who we're supposed to be 
in our fullness that draw us from our integrity, which is the path Jesus would have us on. So confess that. Speak that to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. It might just be that the only way to really recognize what's going on inside of the self and to begin to change that is in the context of this being at peace with one another, being in community and in transparency with one another. Such peace means being sufficiently open and transparent with your fellow travelers such that they can help you to recognize your complexities, your failings, which in turn allows you or me to treat each other in a way that is not manipulative, not damaging, not a cause of stumbling. Confess to one another. Again, that that can sometimes conjure up a, a very formal picture, whether it's of a person to a priest or pastor or or sort of some hushed, very private, confidential conversation. But maybe to confess to one another is sometimes finding that mentor, that confident, that person you can actually share the road with, tell them the truth of who you are, what's going on, and listen as they help you see something of yourself from their eyes. Sometimes that process of confession is really ongoing, deep relational conversation. We need that. You see, for all of the discomfort these gospel words might have caused us, they are indeed for us the word of the Lord. They call us into a deeper and truer place. Amen.